Uh, Joe, we're going to talk about the, the creation story today. That is a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, that's the beginning. Yeah, you know, just starting with that observation, what does the word Genesis mean? I think most people know this, but I think a lot of people may not have thought about it. Right, so uh, beginnings. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, just, just for what it's worth, and I don't know if, if this means anything to anybody else, but I find it interesting. In uh, Matthew chapter 1, 1, when it says the book of the generations in the American standard, the book of the gener- generations of Jesus Christ, it's the word Genesis there, the, work, the, the book of the beginning or the record of the beginning of, uh, of Jesus. And then it gives his genealogy. But anyway, okay, so the book of Genesis tells about the beginning of everything. One thing let's just do right off the bat, uh, and maybe some of our viewers would like to comment on this, should we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3 as kind of a mythology, uh, kind of a, um, you know, a parable? Uh, or should we read it as an account of what actually happened, how God actually created things? Thoughts? Well, I think if we, um, I was reading a little bit from a commentary by Morris, uh, and uh, he touched a little bit on that aspect of uh, if we don't accept the Genesis story, then how do we accept any other part of it? Uh, if we don't accept it as, as historical uh, events, um, uh, then where, where do we stop with that? And my thought always goes to this fact. As we read the New Testament, it seems that Jesus and the Apostle Paul took the accounts of the creation in the first three chapters of Genesis as literal. Um, Jesus refers to to the devil who was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Um, Of course, we don't understand that the serpent in Genesis 3 was the devil until we get to the New Testament, but it makes sense that it was the devil speaking through that serpent when we look at Jesus' reference to him as a liar and murderer from the beginning. That's John 8, and I believe it's about verse 44. Uh, Revelation 12 is another passage where in verse 9, the serpent is referred to as Satan. But there's another thing, and and this is in the context of divorce and remarriage. Remember the point that Jesus makes there? Matthew 5, Matthew 19, referencing to from the beginning it was not so. Yeah, Uh, and in Mark's account, in Mark 10, when there's this conversation about is it lawful to put away a a wife, a woman for every cause, uh, the way Mark gives Jesus' words is this, Mark 10, verse um, verse 6, From the beginning of the creation, male and female made he them. For this cause shall a man leave his father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no more two but one flesh. And then, of course, he continues. But he's alluding to that story of creation when God made them male and female. It's certainly not a picture of there was a creation, and then over millions of years, things gradually evolved until you got to a distinction of of sexes, and and then in the animal kingdom, and then in human beings. And then Paul makes a couple of references to the creation, including in 1 Corinthians 11, where he talks about the uh, the the woman having been created for the man, and the man having been created first, in First Timothy the second chapter also um, talks about the woman being deceived, the man not being deceived. All of that alludes to the things we read in Genesis chapters one through three, as if those things were factual. They really happened, and for this reason, there are certain doctrinal truths to be discerned. 
maybe add to that just one more, although the list could pro, uh, be extended probably by 100. Uh, Romans 5, again, when Paul was talking about how sin entered the world, it entered the world through the man Adam. And uh, uh, again, that's that's told as a, as a factual statement, not some sort of, of allegory or uh, figurative language. This is where sin began. And of course, we look back at the story, and that's what that's what happened. And so, none of those passages refer to um, the six days of creation. Although we have something alluding to that in the Ten Commandments, when when the Sabbath day is is, is instituted as part of the law of Moses. Uh, but you know, to my way of thinking, if 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 I come to the New Testament and I see Jesus and Paul alluding to the creation of the woman from the man. Uh, being taken out of the man and um, being created after the man and and then the serpent speaking you know the, the the difficult parts for me if I were a skeptic I think the difficult the challenging parts would be the idea of a talking snake and the idea of a woman being created from the rib of the man that would to me be the kind of thing I would say well that sounds like a parable that sounds like something mythological and yet those are the things that in the New Testament, seem to be taken literally, if, if that is not to be taken as a parable, if that is not mythological, then when I think of the six days of creation in Genesis 1, I really don't have a problem taking that literally. Yes. Uh, th- this, would, this is not a passage that's going to solve those questions for everybody, <clears throat> but to me it helps to appreciate the six-day creation and what it means in uh, Jeremiah 32, uh, as uh, Jeremiah is praying, and he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Uh, and so by looking at the creation, Jeremiah comes to the conclusion, God, there's there's nothing off the table. You know, everything, you, you're capable of anything. Right, right. Now, let's talk about this this chapter one and exactly what we're told here. Uh, let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. Well, let's read, let's read the first three verses here. In the begin, This is verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And, of course, he goes on and say, it goes on and says, God separated the light from the darkness and called it light. Uh, morning and evening, uh, called it, called the light day and the darkness night. There was morning and evening the first day. Verse one is interpreted in various ways. And I want to mention three of them when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One way that's interpreted is to suppose that that's a statement. uh, That's the first act of creation that God created the heavens and the earth and then the next thing he did was he created the light, that, that that's what that's saying. Now, my point here is not whether or not that happened. My point is, is verse 1 saying God created the heavens and the earth, and then in verse 3 it says he created light. Another way that some have looked at this, and this became popular in the 1800s, was to suppose that it should be read this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then there was a huge, long period of time, a gap. And then verse 2, the earth was formless and void. They say should be read, the earth became formless and void. 
And then you get the beginning of the six days of creation. So in this second interpretation called um, pre-Adamism, the idea is the earth was in existence for a very long time before Adam and that there was a rate. Now, a lot gets read into this. There's a lot of imagination that goes into this. That before Adam, there was a pre-Adamic, before Adam, race of human-type people uh, that lived on this earth and that God ended up condemning them and uh, then the earth became formless and void. And then you have the earth starting over with the six days of creation. And, and those who advocate this theory have tried to use this theory as a means of accounting for the fossil record, which they say, well, when you find all these fossils of ancient human-type beings, they're probably people from that pre-Adamic race. Uh, go ahead. You, go ahead. I'll get to my third view in a second. Well, just that is really uh, reading a lot between that first and second verse there. Um, you know, my Bible doesn't even have enough of a space between verse one and verse two to get all that in. Yeah, uh, you know, whenever you whenever you hear that much of a doctrine taught between verses, uh, I think it's a, a legitimate question of, of why do we have to search that hard? Yeah, they're they're really starting from. What they what they think science and geology is telling them. Right, right. Yeah, we've we've got to compromise something, so we're going to find a space in here and uh, invent something that seems to to go along with, uh, with with what we've been believing. Now, my own view is is this third view, and it is that the statement in verse one, where it says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth," that that is a summary statement summarizing. The whole of chapter one, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he's going to tell us how he did it. So the difference between this third view that, that I think is right and the first view is rather than seeing verse one as a statement, okay, God did this, and then next he did something else, he created light. We view verse one as just kind of an introductory summary statement. God created the heavens and the earth, and then we're going to be told how that happened over the course of six days. With that view, we really are not told at any point in this about when or exactly how God first formed the globe. We're just introduced to it being formless and void in verse 2. And then the beginning uh, of the six days of creation gets started. You may disagree with that, Joe, but um, that's, that's my thinking. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I, 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 I agree with what you said, and from my vantage point, you have this bookend, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth, that's where we started, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Yep, there you go. And so he, he's kind of, uh, he started off, and, and really, from my vantage point, he does the same thing with chapter 2, or, or with the next story, the creation of man. Yeah, about man was created, and then he goes into detail about how man was created. Exactly. In chapter 2, verse 4, there's this summary statement telling what he's going to tell you about. Chapter right. 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. And then we get a new telling of the creation story, this time with a different focus than the telling in chapter 1. But we'll get right. to that in a minute. Good point. All right. So then we come to the actual telling of the six days of creation, and there's some nice symmetry in here, um, but there's also a question, 
why would God have done this over six days? And, and I've got some thoughts about that. But first, let's notice some nice symmetry. Joe, you were nodding your head. I think you know where I was going with this. Well, it's kind of handy. Uh, I remember sitting in classes shortly after I became a Christian and still didn't know a lot about the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And I would, I would attend the, the children's classes on Sunday afternoon. Yeah. That's really where I learned the Bible, uh, was sitting three rows behind these four-year-olds. Um, Who needs a seminary? We got children's classes. <laughs> they were wonderful. Yes, I know. I've, I've, I've recommended the same thing to people. And so uh, hearing how you have the first three days provide sort of the containers, and then the second three days they are filled in, uh, it's just yeah. in all sorts of ways. Uh, but, yeah, that, that just really, it's helpful to memorize. It's helpful to follow the train of thought in Chapter 1. So let's, let's show that. Let's compare days one through three to days four through six. So day, day one is going con- to um, connect with day four. Day one, he creates the light and separates the light from the darkness. And what's day four? He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. That, that govern the light, yeah. Right. Day two, he is going to create the expanse in the midst of the waters and separate the waters from the waters. The expanse, King James said firmament. Uh, Some of the newer translations say, I forget what they say, but the word here used in the Hebrew language is a word that could be used for anything that could be rolled out flat, sheet of metal, something like that. Of course, we're not talking about metal. We're talking about the sky, which can be viewed as an expanse stretched out waters above and waters below the clouds up in the atmosphere and the, and the waters on the surface of the earth. And so that's day two, day five. What does he create day five? Yeah, so then we drop over in uh, verses 21 and following, and you have uh, him creating the, the winged birds and uh, then also uh, the, the fish uh, being uh, described there as well, um, verse 20 and 21. Uh, so you have the animals that are in the water and the animals in the sky. Yeah, so you used the expression containers a minute ago. The first three days are the containers, and the next three days are the things that go in them. So so day one, you, you've got the light, and then the sun, moon, stars go into the light, which is interesting, and we'll come back to that in a minute because we think, well, the sun creates the light, doesn't it? Um, and then day two, you've got the sky and the water, and that's the containers for the birds and the fish. All right, so then day three, he separates the dry land from the waters and he creates the vegetation. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah that's right. Creates the vegetation, the plants and the trees. Uh, so that would correspond to day six. What's day six? Where you have all the beasts of the field and man being created. And so those that are going to inhabit that third container, uh, those that are going to live on the land. Yeah. Now, somebody would say, well, see, that structure is even evidence that this is not literal. It's just a literary device for talking about the things that God made. There's another thing to be discerned here. The fact that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars on the fourth day, but he created light and separated from darkness on the first day, how do we, what's the difference between our day and night? It's the revolution of the earth to and away from the sun. Without the sun, we don't have daytime. 
And yet he created the light and the daytime and separated the daytime from the nighttime before he ever created the sun or the stars or, or the moon that reflects it. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of an interesting thought because what it tells us is God is able to, to put in place the light that will eventually come from the sun and the stars before he ever creates the sun and the stars. And that does a couple of things for me. It's the first hint that what we have here is not a picture of God kind of set some things in motion and eventually they became what we see today. God created the light already here, just like he's going to create the trees already mature and bearing fruit, just like he's going to create Adam and Eve, full-grown people. He created a fully functional environment so that from the very beginning of creation, at the end of this first six days of creation, you're going to, to look at it and say, well, if all of this just kind of evolved, it would have taken millions and millions and millions of years. And it didn't because he created it fully mature. But the other thing that it solves me is this problem. Uh, the sun is 93 million miles away, which means for light to get here from the sun and for us to see the sun, we have to wait eight minutes and 14 seconds. The sun is the closest star to us. The, this galaxy is full of stars. Uh, to get across this galaxy at the speed of light would take 100,000 years. Meaning as we look at stars on the far side of the galaxy, it, they're tens of thousands of years away in terms of how long it would take the light to get here, and we can't see them unless the light gets here from them. And so people assume, well, those stars must have been there tens of thousands of years ago. And then the Andromeda galaxy, another galaxy, is two and a quarter, two and a half million light years away, meaning it takes that long for the light to get here for us to see it. So they said, well, that had to have been there that long ago. Here's an interesting little side thought about that, and that is because when we see a star, we're not seeing it as it is now. We're seeing it as, as it was. It may not even be there now. Right. We look up and see that star. But the, the more important point is this. God has told us he can put the light here that would arrive having traveled from that star without it having had to make that journey. And so then we ask the question, why would he do that? Well, God wants man to be able to see the stars. Psalm the 19th Psalm in verse 1, the, the heavens are telling the glory of God. We need to be able to see the stars to understand how great God is. Doy Moyer adds to that discussion of, of light. It says, uh, lights also introduces a major biblical theme and bookends the whole scripture. Here in Genesis and then Revelation 22, God is a light in heaven. Light is about God's glory, 1 Timothy 6. Uh, in between, Jesus came as the light, John 1. Christians glorify God by being lights in the world, Matthew 5. It just becomes a major theme uh, through, throughout the, the, the whole Bible. Um, so in, in doing it the way God did it then, he, it, it's easy for us to connect light truly with God rather than with this thing, the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, just that one other practical reason why God would want us to be able to see the stars and not have to wait um, a long time, several generations before we could see them all. Man navig- has for centuries navigated by the stars. And I don't, I don't believe 
that that was a surprise to God. You know, I don't believe when the first guy got out of Sexton and navigated across some ocean using the stars that God was in heaven going, wow, can you believe that? Look at what they're doing. I think God knew that that would be useful to man. And so he made it possible for man to see those things. Yes. Yes. You got another comment there. Uh, oh, thinking about second Corinthians, uh, four, six, first John, uh, one, five, God uh, is light in first John one, five. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. darkness in him. Right. And so it just, it, we just begin to see all of these passages, uh, in the light pun intended of, uh, Genesis, the, the first chapter, um, again, in, uh, maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself, but trying to recognize how all of that fits together and seeing uh, this as part of the Bible story, uh, Doy touched on their Genesis and Revelation. In uh, Morris's commentary, I'll steal a couple of things from there. You have, so in Genesis 1, 4, light and darkness. In Revelation 21, 25, there's no, uh, there's no night there. Um, in, you have the division of the land and the sea in Genesis 1, 10. There's no more sea in Revelation 21. Uh, you have the sun and the moon in Re- Genesis 1:16. There's no need of the sun and the moon in uh, Revelation 22. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I think it's helpful for us to think through this description because it becomes relevant all the way to the very end of uh, the, the Bible. Yeah, so so we can see several reasons, and this may not even be all the reasons God did it the way he did it, the way he tells us he did it, but we've talked about at least a couple of reasons, one being because it highlights the fact that light is from God, uh, and we associate that with God rather than, and, and such an important theme in the Bible, and then secondly, because it illustrates to us that uh, God did indeed put uh, the light here that would eventually come from the stars. So we don't have to calculate how far a star is away uh, from us and think that that's. Um, let's come to the third day. And it mentions in verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And that's the third day. And we don't get to animals. Uh, Birds aren't created until the fifth day. Land animals aren't created until the sixth day. There are people who try to reconcile what is said here with the idea that the earth uh, has been evolving, that all this took place very gradually. And so they'll say, well, each of these days is an epic of millions of years. If, if the trees bearing seed and the plants bearing seed were here from, for millions of years before there were any animals, before there were any birds, some of those trees, some of those plants are dependent upon animals, bugs, and birds to propagate. How did they propagate for millions of years until we get to the, what is it, the fourth, I mean the fifth or the sixth epic? when you would have the things to propagate them. Exactly. Yeah, it's an excellent point. The, uh, perhaps this is the original story of the birds and the bees and the importance of them. Uh, just recognizing that this, the creation does not make sense when you try to compromise it and, and mesh it together with uh, modern evolutionary teachings. And then we get to the, the, the fifth day and he creates the birds flying in the heavens. 
you know, we have this question we always ask, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I think this answers that. God didn't create an egg and, and say, okay, eventually it's going to hatch. Who would have sat on it? Uh, of, of course, God, if he wanted to do it that way, could have caused this egg to be warmed by, you know, he could have done it himself, caused it to hatch. But the point I'm making here is God chose to create things fully functional. He didn't create an egg or a baby bird who would have stuffed worms into its mouth. Of course, God could have done that, but that's not what he said he did. And he didn't create Adam and Eve as babies, and he didn't create an amoeba that would eventually evolve into a larger life form. He created a, a world that was fully functional, ready to go. So if a year after it was created, some modern scientist had happened upon to the scene and started trying to figure out how, how long all this had been here, if he started with the assumption that everything had to have arisen through a long and slow process, uh, starting out with just some basic elements, he'd have thought it had been there for millions of years then. He'd have calculated then that the earth was five and a half billion years old or four and a half billion years old, whatever. Bob Myhan says, some have suggested the original created light was radiant heat. That's what people say about my preaching. It's more heat than light. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's above my pay grade. Uh, that may there there may be some ways of explaining it from scientific vantage points uh, light apart from sun and moon and stars. That's certainly what God says that He did here. Um, and so, what, whatever though, whatever it is, that's exactly what He's done. Adam says, uh, Bob says, Adam probably appeared to be about thirty years old when he was first created. I don't believe that's right, Bob, and I'll tell you why. I believe that God created all of this in its prime, that all of this looked like it was just perfectly primed, and the perfectly primed age for a man is 60 years old. And I say that because I turned 60 years old this past November. No, I, I, I have no idea how. I, I agree with Bob. It'll look like Tanya Wheeler says, plants and trees would need the light from the sun. They couldn't have lasted millions of years without it. The days were 24-hour days. But interestingly, Tanya, uh, yeah, God doesn't create the sun until the fourth day, but he had created light. And so, you know, you could, you could actually sidestep the, the need for the sun because God created light. But, but of course, that's, that's still not going to mesh with the evolutionists because they've got the galaxies and so forth being uh, very old uh, as well. But, yeah, uh, you just begin to run in circles with evolutionary teaching trying to make it match what God says. Here, here's the problem. People who calculate how long ago things got started, apart from the Bible, they are assuming two things. They are assuming that they can, they can extrapolate backwards from modern processes, and they can assume that the rate of change, the rate of decay, the rate of geological evolution, the rate of whatever— has always been constant, that it's always been exactly what it, or, or that, that we can look at the processes now and we can use that as a, as a measuring stick of how long things have been here. And the other assumption that they make is that whatever, whatever we see had to start out as some kind of basic components, that it could not have been created as it is now. And those are assumptions. That's not scientific fact. Those are just assumptions. Right. And if I'm a believer in the God of the Bible, 
the Bible is telling me that's not how things got started. He didn't start everything out with just the basic elements and let them gradually become something. So why would I go down the path with those who try to date how long things have been here when they're starting with an assumption that is contrary to what God's word says? And as far as the idea that everything is, has always been as it is now in terms of natural processes, I didn't think we'd talk about this today, but when we get to the flood, we are told that there are some dramatic changes. Uh, we are told that the waters not only fell from the heavens, but burst up from the ground to cover the earth, which would be some dramatic, sudden geological change. And then we are told that people before the flood were living, routinely living eight or 900 years. Lamech was an outlier. He died at only 777 years. And they all said, oh my, he was so young. And so you look at that, and then you look at the age of people after the flood, and very quickly, the lifespan of man drops down to something equivalent to today. And then you look at man's diet before the flood. He, he wasn't eating meat. After the flood, he's eating meat. And uh, you look at the rainbow, which may indicate if there were no rainbows before the flood, if, if we take God's statement that way, then that would indicate the change in the atmosphere. And um, there's another significant change. I can't think of right now what it is. But, but you look at these great changes, and you, you just have to say, you know, it was just a different world before the flood. And Peter, in Second Peter, the third chapter, uses this language. He says, the world that then was, as opposed to the world that now is. And my point is this. While none of that tells us about a change in radioactive decay rates, what it does say is somehow things were very different before the flood than they were after the flood, which tells me I am making a foolish assumption if I assume that the rates of natural the, the rate of change in natural processes today are the same as what they were before the flood. But those who try to calculate how the earth is, they have to make that assumption. Well, what it's worth. They have a lot of faith. <laughs> yes, that's right. All right. Well, let's get back to the text here. Um, we come down to Genesis, the twenty, uh, the first chapter, in verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image. Had God said anything like that about anything he created up to this point? Uh, no, no, nothing. Uh, this is a much uh, more specific part of the creation. Um, all the things he's done up to this point are good, but nothing describing it being in his image in that fashion. So what does that mean? To be made in God's image, yeah, uh, in His likeness. Okay. Uh, thinking about uh, Jesus's statement about the paying taxes, uh, whose image is on the denarii, uh, whose, whose likeness is that? And so then, since we are made in God's image, we need to give to God ourselves. So Mormons uh, will claim that this is evidence that God is a physical human. Excuse me, God is a physical human uh, has a physical bodily form because they say we're created in the image of God and we have 10 fingers and two eyes and a nose with two nostrils and so on. So God must have these things. Well, if we were only to uh, think of the creation as being uh, physical, um, then we might uh, be inclined to, to agree with them. But of course, John four, Jesus says God is spirit uh, he talks about a spirit not having flesh and bones. 
as you see me having, Luke's 24th chapter. And there's this passage in Colossians, the third chapter, in verse 10. Paul speaks of us as putting on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him. So when we are spiritually renewed, we are being renewed in the image of God. Nothing physical changes, and and yet I'm being renewed in the image of God. My being in the image of God is not my physical body. My being in the image of God is, is spiritually. And this is something that is unique to, to man, both male and female, being in the image of God. So the animals, as I, as I understand it, they're not spiritually in the image of God. Man is. And then, and then God says something that kind of puts, our, puts everything in perspective. What is this creation all about? Is, is it a creation God wanted to make? And then he thought, well, I'll stick some people in it because that'll be cool. Um, or, and then the people mess it all up. And so the people are the problem. Or is the creation something that God has, has created for man? And let's come to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 28 uh, through 30. Really go all the way through 31. You want to read those? 28 through 31? Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then, and then we get the summary, the concluding summary statement that you mentioned, which is in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And then the seventh day in which God rests, which doesn't mean that God is, is exhausted, but he ceased as, as, a, as you roll a ball across the floor and it comes to rest. It stops. So the point that I wanted to make about the perspective uh, that we should have with regard to all these things is God puts man over all of this. The implication seems to be here that God created all of this as a habitation for man. It was for man. Um, Man's not just something that gets to live in it. This is created for man, and it was all good. So really... Our chapter divisions in the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible have been introduced by people. The better chapter division here would be if chapter 1 continued all the way to the end of verse 3. And in the book of Genesis, there's some language that occurs. I don't remember now if it's 10 or 11 times, but they are the natural chapter breaks. And the language first occurs in chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is introducing it, the next telling of the creation. So really, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 is kind of like a preface in which there's a chronological account of creation. And now we're going to get to the natural beginning of chapter 2, the natural chapter break, which is at our chapter 2, verse 4. And we're going to get another account of creation, but this one from a different perspective. Right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just uh, say right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen. 
<laughs> All right. So here, and this is interesting because people think that there's a contradiction here. Uh, we come to chapter two, and it says in verse five, as we're getting into this second telling of creation, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no rain and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And so somebody would look at that and say, well, that sounds like God created man first and then he created the plants. But in chapter one, what did we find out? That the plants had been created uh, on the uh, fifth day. Uh, third day. The third day, I'm sorry. Yeah. And man was created on the sixth. Yeah, yeah right. So, uh, so plants were created first. And that was the chronological account. So some people think, well, this is a contradiction. But chapter two is not meant to be a chronological account so much as it is telling us, focusing in on the, the distinction of man and woman and how they came to be and, and, and kind of looking at things from a, from a perspective of what's the centerpiece of all of this. Uh, and I can illustrate it this way. Um, you know, my children, um, I don't know if this illustration is going to work or not. We didn't ha- let our children get uh, the driver's license right away when they turned 16. Did you? Uh, no, we, we didn't. Jersey 17, but yeah, same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and one reason is, of course, that they didn't need cars at 16, but another reason is because insurance is expensive and you don't want to pay for insurance for them. Um, and, uh, you know, you might, I might've just said to them, um, I might've just said to them, well, you know, uh, you don't need a driver's license yet because you don't have a car yet, you know? And so then the implication would be, well, he's going to get the car before he gets his driver's license. <laughs> But in, in reality, it might be that when he's 35, I finally let him get his driver's license, and uh, then he gets his car the next day. Um, so the chronological account would be he got his driver's license and his car. But I said to him, you don't need a car. You don't need a, a car until you get a – there's no reason for you to get a – am I messing up this illustration? I may, maybe, no reason to get a license since you don't have a car. There you go. That's the way I'm trying to say this. Thank you. All right. So in that statement, I'm not really trying to make a chronological statement of exactly which comes first. I'm, I'm talking about there's no need for one without the other. And, and again, if we're talking about six days of creation, he creates the plants on the third day and man on the sixth day. That's kind of like the license and getting the car, you know, right away. All right. Uh, I hope that illustration made sense. I'm not sure anybody followed that, but I'm glad you did. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous if nobody else did because I understood it and it made sense. It's scary if you're thinking like me <laughs> and you're the only one who does. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, so then we have the story of the, the Garden of Eden and um, the Tree of Life and the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. But we need, I guess, let's just get straight to the creation of man and the creation of woman. We've got five minutes less left, less than five minutes. So let's see if we can cover those in less than five minutes here. Creation of man. What happens? Uh, God creates man from the dust of the earth, uh, verse seven. And he creates the woman from the rib of man. Yeah. Um, it's interesting as we look at uh, how God introduces the idea of creating the woman it's in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a help suitable for him or a help 
meat for him or, or fit for him. It really bothers me. Maybe it shouldn't, but it annoys me when people use the phrase a help meet. That's like saying a help fit or a help suitable. It doesn't complete the thought. It was a help meet, meaning suitable, a help meet, meet, meetable, a help suitable to the man. And, uh, but you expect the very next thing is going to be, okay, so God creates the woman, but he doesn't. The next thing it tells us is he brings the animals to Adam, and Adam names them all. And when he gets through doing that, it says in verse 20, at the end of the verse, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And that leads to the question, did God suppose maybe Adam would be happy with a zebra as a mate or, you know, an ostrich or a gerbil? Oh, dog's man's best friend. Yeah, right. And, and that's not the point at all. God knew what he was doing here. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh of that place. God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, brought her to the man, and the man said... This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You look at the relationship of the words woman and man. They both have man in them. But woman, you see, in Hebrew, ish and isha. The man is ish and isha. And the the words by their very sound show there's a relationship between the two. And this is why, as, as it's told here, it seems, is why God created the woman differently than the man. He creates the woman differently because she is to be created from the man so that then God, man will look at the woman and see she it corresponds to me. She was created from me, and when we come back together, it's kind of the completion of a whole. Uh, and having looked at all the animal kingdom and seen that there was no mate suitable for him in the animal kingdom, He's impressed with the uniqueness of the woman, the unique suitabilityness of the woman to him. I'm not sure if you should read this next question or not. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure Edwin wants us to read this next question unless he's got a good answer for it. <laughs> Edwin, he asks. We've got two minutes. Uh, is that time for Edwin to get himself off the hook if he can come up with the answer? It's, it's time to get him in trouble, at least. All right. So Edwin says, why does Adam need a helper at all? So I, I'll tell you, here's, here's a thought that, that, that comes to my mind is this was not God going, oh, man looks so lonely. Uh, God intended from the beginning that there would be multiple people. So obviously he has reproduction in mind, but he doesn't create, he could have, you know, he's created some creatures that can reproduce without there being two sexes. But it seems to me that God intended for there to be male and female. When he created man, he created him male and female. God saw fit to do this because he wanted there to be this relationship between male and female. Edwin may have a more profound answer. Maybe you do, Joe. Well, let me just add to that. Um, uh, I think what it does is it it brings us back to that spiritual relationship with God. Uh, Malachi 2, uh, when God is rebuking uh, the the men who were offering up sacrifices to God, but the altar was covered with the tears of the wives that they had mistreated in whatever ways. Um, But what he says in just to get to the heart of it, when he talks about the wife of their covenant at the end of verse 14, he says, but did he not make them one talking about the man and the woman 
having, uh, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. That's good. And we should also not overlook the thought that God is going to use this husband-wife relationship to paint a picture of God's own relationship to his people and his nurturing uh, relationship with his people and the relationship of Christ to the church. And surely God had all of that in mind from the get-go. Well, we're out of time. I'd like to come back next week but <coughs> talk a couple, couple more points about this that we need to get to. But we're out of time today. Thank you for watching. Those of you who watched live, Joe, thank you for your help today as always. And thanks to our webcast engineer, Noah Andrews. And we'll sign off. <clears throat>